I would ask that you would grab uh, God's Word and you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and uh, we are in week 2 of a short uh, series that we've called I Church, connecting the individual believer to the corporate body, uh, the church, the family of God. And last week we talked on the issue of community, and we talked about the importance of us as individuals, not just being individual Christians, but that it key to all that we do, all of who we are, is that we are a part of a family. We are a part of a corporate entity, a corporate body, that we are small parts of a greater body with Christ being the head. And we talked as we've been looking at Acts chapter 2, the example of the first church. And we talked about how here in America, uh, community is something that we have, we have formed a deformed uh, view of. While we talk about koinonia in the Bible, we think that a little conversation in coffee is what the Bible is talking about. And that can't, couldn't be farther from the truth. That koinonia really is sharing one's life and sharing the totality of oneself with one another. Whether it's material goods, whether, if you will, just very simple, if it's your heart, hands, um, or anything that you're a part of, that you'd be willing to share that for the good of your brother and sister in Christ. Now many of us, and I'm excited about this, after hearing this issue of community and our warped view of it, many of you came up and you said, you know what, it's the first time I've really thought about uh, being connected to a body. And I have to tell you, there were quite a few of you who came and said, my view of community was lukewarm. My view of community uh, was really lacking. And we had some people sign up for small groups, which was a huge step for some of these people uh, to be able to uh, do because they were introverts and they said you know what I, I know God wants me to do this but it's really hard for me and so I'm really encouraged by the steps of faith by some uh, to be able to do that I would encourage you with that I also would encourage you that uh, with regards to small groups we have the most people we've ever had involved in small groups opportunities for real community in our uh, in our body we have more small groups meeting than ever before and it's not that we're about numbers or people uh, involved in programs but we're excited because we believe that small groups really are a wonderful catalyst for community to take place and so it's not too late to get involved in small groups and we want to continue to invite you to be a part of that we'll find you a group that will work just right for you and your schedule well as we look now uh, to the second part we look at the issue of worship at the issue of worship and uh, as we look at this issue of worship, I want you to understand that worship is important. It's important probably for different reasons, as I'm going to share today, than what you may think uh, it, as to why it's important. And I want to look at under the heading of why worship matters this morning. So let's stand and let's read uh, God's Word and uh, let uh, it uh, lead our time this morning. I'm going to move back a little bit in Acts 2 to Acts 2, 36 through 47 this morning. Acts 2, 36 through 47. Here's what the word of the Lord says to us. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. This is Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost after the Holy Spirit has come upon the 120 in the upper room. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, 
for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, Peter warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Father God, we come before you, Lord. And Lord, I pray that your word would be that lamp unto my feet and a light unto our path. Lord, we need to know how to worship you. You call us to be worshipers. And Lord, we need to do it right. We need to do it focusing in on the right things. We need to know the God whom we worship. We need to make sure that uh, we have a deep and all-encompassing uh, desire to make sure you are high and lifted up. And yet, Lord, so many of us come in so casual. We come in with our thoughts on so many temporal things instead of on you and you glorified. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me in a powerful way, that your spirit would lead our time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And amen. You may be seated. Let me share a frustration with you as a way of my opening illustration. Anytime I get ready to prepare a message after doing some uh, study on the text and understanding where I'm going to go on a particular message, after I have a good direction on where I believe God is leading me, I will go to my bookshelf and I will look for books that I have within my library that are written by godly men and women, men and women who are far wiser, far more knowledgeable than I am. And I will see what they have to say on the subject matter that I may be speaking on that given week. And so I w went to my uh, library, and I went to look, and, and I thought that what I would find with the issue of worship, some tangible things that maybe some authors have written about on the subject of worship would be found in a book that was written to new believers and I've got probably uh, almost a dozen books that are written for the new believer what are the needed essentials uh, for a life in Christ someone has come to know Jesus and what are the things that they need to know and be aware of and be taught in so that they can walk in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and so I grabbed all those books fully expecting that I would find some chapters on the issue of worship to my chagrin, not one of those books written by wonderful pastors had any subject matter on the subject of worship. Now here's where my frustration lies. If we don't know how to worship as Christians, then we fail at the very essence of what we are called to do. We've got nothing. If we can't worship, then who are we? We are not first evangelists. We are not first preachers. We are not first servants. We are first and foremost, as believers, worshipers of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. And so I was frustrated that that was the case. And maybe I misunderstood some of these writers. I still deeply respect them all. But there was a real struggle. And the only thing I could find was uh, 
a book that uh, was written by a friend of mine, John Armstrong. He's preached from this pulpit many times. And he was the ed general editor of a book called The Coming Evangelical Crisis. And in that, he brought together 14 pastors, big name, very reputable names of, of individuals who wrote on different subject matters. And one of the chapters uh, that was written was How Then Shall We Worship by John MacArthur. And in the subject matter, he says, John MacArthur, and I quote, within the churches today, we have a theme that the wilder the service is, the better. The more entertaining a service is, the greater number of people you will have come in. That if you don't have a good band, you don't have worship. Within churches, we have this idea that the show is bigger than the Savior. Now, I don't like pointing fingers, and I understand that there are many things that we do that we could probably have fingers pointed at us, but here in America, within Western culture, our churches have become more like concerts than they have corporate worship. And what I want to take the time this morning to do is to deal with some of these deformed expectations, to deal with them and have us have a clear understanding of what the first church did with regards to worship within our text. And then I want us to begin to apply those things to our lives. The first thing I want you to notice this morning is our pattern of worship. Our pattern for worship. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I want to explore what the first church did. And I want you to know that one of the key characteristics, as we will explore five of the major characteristics of the first church, and five key characteristics that we as a church want to have, is that the first church was a worshiping church. It was a worshiping church. I want you to notice this pattern. Now notice this pattern of worship involved community. So why did we start with community? Someone came up and said, shouldn't we start with worship? Yes, I think usually you should. But within the context of our passage this morning, community was what really bred uh, the worship that was going on. And here's what I mean by that. Because the first church we see, it was very important for them to come together as a body. Write that down this morning. The pattern of their worship began as they came together as one body. The text tells us, and I said this before and I'll say it again, notice in our passage, especially verses 42 through 47, it is saturated with plural pronouns. It's all about them. It's all about them together. There's no individuals within the church. It is one body worshiping together, one body standing in awe together, one body revering the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ together. Community was a very important part to the worship of the church. Now, some of you right away are saying, wait a minute, Tim. The Psalms are filled with passages of private worship, and I would agree. But one commentary that I read had gone through and done their homework and said the uh, balance between private worship in the scriptures and public worship, there's no comparison. Public worship is by far the far more weightier subject matter within the totality of scripture. And so we talk about as worshipers, it's, it's about me. And yeah, there is an element that it's about me, but really worship is about us. And it's about us and God. And it's there that community 
in common unity, we raise our voice in one accord and we say to our God in heaven, you are the one to be praised. You are the great God. You are the one that we uh, give our lives to. You are the one that we call ourselves to be obedient to. You are the one who deserves all praise, glory, and honor. And so we see that it's not just this private thing that we do, but it involves the entire body. Now let me explain to you very quickly. We have to be careful that it's not just good enough for us as people just to gather together, sing some songs, uh, do some common things together. This idea of community cannot be trumped as to the activity that we're doing. The foundation of the community must be set upon worship. Let me explain that for you. If we gather together and we have a service, and our service involves singing, and our service involves some prayers, and our service involves maybe someone getting up and talking, but it does not involve someone that we're preaching to about, if it's not someone we're praying to, if it's not someone's praises that we're singing of, that being God, then all you and I are is a Sunday morning country club. We're a Sunday morning uh, community center. And so what makes us a church, the word church is ecclesia in, in the Greek, in the original language. We are an assembly, but we are an assembly that has one desire, one focus, and one foundation, and that is to proclaim and praise the name of Jesus Christ. And if we forget that, and if our intentions, and if our focuses as individuals and as a body begin to be something else than that, then we cease to be the church that God has called us to be. And so the first church reminds us that our pattern must be of a community involved in worship. It must be involved in worship. Now notice the next element of worship within the pattern of, of that first church was that they committed themselves to the Lord's commands. This pattern involved committing themselves to the Lord's commands. Time and time again, notice in our text this morning that we see a church, and notice, in fact, as Peter is preaching, people come forward. And we see that. We do that even today where the message is preached, and people respond, and they responded that day. And notice it says, and those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number. So there's a definite group of people. It wasn't just anybody and everybody that, that was around, that hung around them, but there was a definite group of people. And might I say that definite group of people had the focus and had the uh, important calling to worship. But what did those birthmarks involve? Notice verse 37. The first thing that we must have as worshipers is that we must be cut to the heart and be saved. Verse 37 says that after Peter preaches this message, this weak and uh, uh, sad and pathetic Peter who before the, uh, or, or, uh, before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is running for his life now and a matter of uh, weeks later stands before of all of Jerusalem, stands before 15 different nationalities, and he stands and he boldly proclaims that it is Jesus Christ, the one that was crucified, who was both Lord and Christ. And people are cut to the heart. They're cut to the heart because they see these individuals speaking in a tongue that they, uh, them fully knowing that they're Jewish men and women, are hearing their native tongue. And they are knowing that these people can't speak in their language. And they're cut to the heart. And they come before Christ and they bow. And they accept him 
as Lord and Savior. I want to make this abundantly clear. And you may disagree with this, and it may come across harsh, and I don't mean it to be at all. But if you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have never repented of your sins, if you have never gotten to a point in your life where you say, God, I'm a sinner and I'm far from you, I'm an affront to your holiness, and I need Jesus in my life, I need Jesus to lead me, to guide me, to redeem me, to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. If you have never come to that place, you may have been coming to Village Bible Church for years, and I will tell you, in some ways, you may be wasting your time because you are not worshiping the God that you talk about. Here's the reason why. J Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman and, uh, at the well in John chapter 4. And Jesus said that his Father in heaven, God, was seeking worshipers who would worship in spirit and in truth. That is a real understanding of what God expects, what God is looking for. The prerequisite for worshipers is that we worship in spirit and we worship in truth. You cannot worship in spirit, you cannot worship in truth if you've not trusted your life to Jesus Christ. Now before you begin to think, well then why in the world am I here? You just said you like having guests, and I've come, and I'm not sure what to make of this God. I'm not sure what to make of this Jesus, and you just kicked me out the door. Let me share this caveat with you. The reason why we love having you here as you are trying to understand and trying to uh, put together this whole life of faith and Jesus Christ and all that we're a part of, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 articulates a truth to us. And it says that as an unbeliever enters into a time of public worship, that you will see as an unbeliever the difference in us. I mean, it's really odd if you really think about it, that we would gather together, we'd come into one room, hundreds of people, and we would sing songs to a person we've never seen before. We would pray, I mean, when have you ever prayed to anybody else, especially as an unbeliever, you see this, we pray and we're talking to someone that nobody sees, nobody hears. A guy gets up and he reads from an ancient book and he says that book as the actual words of God and the people heartily agree with it and that we would base our entire life on that book to live a life and to live our lives in this world. You gotta, I gotta be honest with you, if you're an unbeliever in here, I'm sure there's a lot of confusing things going on right now. It's pretty messed up. But my hope and my prayer is as you interact with the people of God, as you see our genuine love and desire for the God whom we serve, when you've seen the change and you hear about the change in our lives, that what Paul says is when the unbeliever comes into the public assembly, he says what will happen as they view our worship and they hear our prophetic word, that it will convict the unbeliever of their sin, that that unbeliever will be called to account that the secret things of their heart will be disclosed and it will lead the seeker to fall on his face and to worship God. And so we're glad you're here. And we're glad you're here so that you can hear and one day we hope and one day we pray that you'll bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And you're invited here every day and we're going to keep proclaiming the gospel because we look forward to one day you bowing the knee to Jesus Christ and becoming a worshiper of the one true God. Can I tell you that worship evangelism 
what Paul is talking about is the easiest form of evangelism for us as Christians. You don't have to hand out a track. You don't have to go out of your comfort. You just need to worship. And let me ask you this this morning as a church. Does our worship create such a response in the unbeliever that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 14, he says that the unbeliever will say the following, surely God is in this place. Can unbelievers say that this morning of us? When they've watched us sing, when they've heard us pray, when they're listening to the words that I preach, can they say, God is in this place? I'm not sure what to make of it, but what I've been a part of is amazing. And it's amazing because it doesn't follow the pattern of this world. I hope nobody walks away and says, boy, that band was great. They should go on the road. I hope they say that sweaty bald guy, man, he's quite a communicator. Tony Robbins should grab him, and man, they should go on some motivational speaking tour. I hope they say, I don't get them. They're a strange, they're a peculiar group of people, but my goodness, they love their God. That's pretty amazing what's going on in their midst. This is what the church at Acts had going on. It was because they were a worshiping people. Notice they were committed also to the command of baptism to the command of baptism. The implications are huge. 3,000 people came to Christ that day of Pentecost. And it says 3,000 were baptized. Oh, how we have lessened the issue of baptism to our own peril. And here's the issue. While baptism, while, um, let me say this again, while conversion, while being justified is a prerequisite for worship, baptism is not. But let me challenge you in this way. How is it that I can be involved in worshiping the ongoing proclamation of the greatness of God if I have failed to fulfill his command that I be baptized? All baptism is, is Jesus' way of telling us how to tell people we are believers. Now let me tell you something. You are telling people you are a believer when you sit in this place and you sing and you proclaim and you pray to the God of the universe. And so my struggle is, is the disconnect that you'll do that each and every Sunday, but you won't do exactly what Jesus said, and that is be baptized. 3,000 accepted the message, and 3,000 were baptized. We need to follow the proclamation of what God said through his word, and that is that it is imperative for every child of God to enter into the waters of baptism to once and for all tell the world, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I am a worshiper of Jesus Christ. Notice one, follow, one more uh, thing, and that was they devoted themselves to what is said as the breaking of bread. Okay? Notice verse 42. Now, you'll see they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Then you'll notice later on in the text, in verse 46, notice with me, that they broke bread in their homes. Why would Luke, the writer of Acts, repeat this? Most scholars believe that he's talking about two different kinds of breaking of bread. The first one, the breaking of bread, is signifying their partaking together of the Lord's Supper. The second one has to do with them just having fellowship in their homes, eating and enjoying the company of one another, which the um, 
which it says they broke bread in the homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. So there's this hospitality, which we talked about last week. There's this community that's going on not only in the church, but also as the church gathers together in smaller groups within the confines of a local home. But notice that part of our worship involves following the commands of trusting Christ as our Savior, being baptized, and partaking in the Lord's Supper together. Now, why is this? Because Jesus said the night that he was betrayed that we should proclaim our Lord's death until he comes. And one aspect, while it never dictates how often we should do this, it always says that one of the centerpieces of worship must be us gathering together around the communion table. And as we do that, that it would never just become this ritual or this thing that we do that's just rote, but it would be something that would change us. Communion is spending time in community together, communing with our God, but brothers and sisters also communing together. And that is why we gather together and we don't, we don't just have communion when a couple of us are here, but we make sure all have gathered together and we partake together and we celebrate together because communion is to be a corporate thing. It is to be something that we do as a body that the reason why we gather, the reason why we worship is because our Lord and Savior died on the cross of Calvary, gave his life for us, and in doing so we celebrate that and make that the centerpiece of our worship. Notice finally they continued in prayers together. In verse 42, the text tells us their worship was full of prayers. Notice it says, again, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's number one. We'll talk about that next week. Number two, they devoted themselves uh, to the fellowship. Number three, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And then it says, and they devoted themselves to prayer. That's in the NIV. The ESV is a better, I think, translation for us in this. That it, it says, and they devoted themselves to the prayers. And the idea there is, is that there were, mo there were a, a whole bunch of different prayers that were being prayed. One of the key parts of any worship service is that we have to pray. And not just pray for those that are hurting, while that is so important, and that while we are to bring our supplications before the Lord, but our prayer should be that of adoring our God and, and Savior, adoring Him. He is great, we are not. He is awesome, and we are sinners. He is the one who loved us, and we need to pray about the height and depth and, and width and length of the love of Jesus Christ. We need to be praying about those things and praising the name of Jesus, not only in song, but in prayer. We should be praying thanksgiving prayers that remind us that because God has saved us, we are so thankful, we are filled with gratitude. Our lives would be nothing without Jesus and his death on the cross. And so thank you, Jesus. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. Thank you for giving us a church that we have people that love on us, care for us, carry our burdens for us. And then prayers of confession. Lord, this week we've blown it. Lord, this week we have, like sheep, all gone astray, each to our own way. Lord, even though you've died on the cross, even though you've given us everything that we need, we've turned our way. We've gone away from you, and we need to make right. These were the prayers that were offered with regards to the first church. There were prayers that were done by the men who led the church. Paul tells Timothy that the men of the church should lead in times of corporate worship. 
but it also is told in 1 Corinthians that women would get up and pray within the church. We are told that prayer is something that is done, of course, as individuals. It's done in small groups, and it's done corporately. It's done even within the corporate sense. Sometimes we see in the early, very early church, uh, amongst the um, Didache, which was something that was written around 150 A.D., that one of the practices of that church, only about 120 years after Christ, was the the reciting of uh, the Lord's Prayer. They wanted to make sure that prayer was a part of it and that it was done by the entire body. Let me confess something to you. I was recently confronted by a friend of mine that there was concern that I don't have a real leadership focus on the issue of prayer, and I'll tell you, my friend was absolutely right. I'm not as dependent as I should be with regards to prayer. Oh, how the things of business and the things of getting ministry done sometimes uh, takes away my focus of being dependent on God. And if it isn't happening from the pulpit, brothers and sisters, then we're failing you. And so one thing we're going to commit to you as elders and as leaders of the church is prayer is going to become a greater focus in the days to come. And that may mean we're going to get out of our comfort zones, that we as an assembly might gather together and we say, you know what, take a couple minutes and grab somebody and pray. Pray with the person sitting next to you. Now I know the Americanism of our lives just starts yelling, I don't want to do that. You can't tell me to do that. Well, brothers and sisters, then why are we here? Really, why are we here? If we're worshipers of God, then then shouldn't we desire to have a conversation with our our God in heaven? If he's the one who has saved us, shouldn't we be so excited to be able to say thank you? I know some of you brothers and sisters are, are not my personality, and you are lucky. But let me remind you, we have been saved from the flames of hell, and it should be an honor and a privilege to lift high the name of Jesus in our prayers and to do so without any concern of my own feelings and emotions because he's worthy of my praise. What a church. They were devoted to worship. The final thing I want you to see, and just so you know, man, you know this, but my first point is always the longest. Don't get nervous. I only got... 45 more minutes, so stick with me. The final thing that they did was they celebrated together in praise. We see the first side of what I would say is a real and true dichotomy when it comes to worship in verse 47. We see that they gathered together in praise. The word there literally means uh, to shout out with gladness. What it means is they gathered together and they in some ways couldn't contain themselves of, of just the excitement of gathering together. It's time to go to church. It's time to gather together. It's time to spend a a concerted amount of time focused on praising the name of Jesus. And they were excited. They looked forward to it. They loved being in the house of God with the people of God, praising the name of God. They longed to come together in one voice and worship the name of Jesus. Now I want you to know something that when we do that, when we pursue that, when our focus here on Sunday morning is to gather together to proclaim the name of Jesus, and we come fired up to do it, that notice what happens in verse, uh, let's see here, I didn't write it down, verse 47, it says, they were praising God 
And notice what happens when we are a people who praise God, who shout with gladness about our Savior, that it will create community. Notice how this all fits together. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. When you're excited about your relationship with Jesus Christ, you're going to be excited about your relationship with others. When you're in the right place with God, you're going to be in the right place with others. When your vertical relationship is on fire with God, you're going to have some real strong relationships with others. And I'm telling you, part of the reason why we don't find ourselves enjoying the favor of all people is because it's not because of the other people. It's because our relationship with God is all wrong. Our worship is not what it needs to be. And as a result of that, we find ourselves broken in our relationships with others, not in favor with one another, not living out 1 Corinthians 13 within the body of living lives of love because we truly are struggling to love the God of the universe with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The community that they had was built through times together. Their times together were focused on one thing, and that was to be worshipers. When we cease to be worshipers and choose to be spectators, when we focus in on preferences and not on the person of Christ, when we are more concerned about time of a service and our own spiritual temperature, when we allow our emotions to rule us instead of every word that comes from God, and we fail as worshipers and we need to repent. I want you point number two to notice the process. Once we have the corporate components together, we must in involve ourselves in the individual side of worship. You see, there's the corporate side, and now there's the individual side. What must Tim Bidall do as a part of the Assembly of Village Bible Church? What must I do to ready myself, to prepare myself to be one who worships with other worshipers? You see, some of us spend, and I'm going to say this, some of us spend more time preparing for extracurricular activities than we do church. Parents, we spend more time making sure that our kids' homework assignment books are in the backpack, that lunches are packed and everything the night before, because God forbid if our kids are running around before school. We make sure that there is a pattern to which we are going to be a part of, to make sure that whatever the activity is, we're there, we're ready, we're prepared. And sadly, the same people that do that are totally unprepared on Sunday morning when it comes to the church. The preparation, and I say this because of a, a way of exhortation, the preparation of the church happens long before Sunday morning. It begins Saturday night. It prepares because here's what happens, and it probably happened to you this morning. You woke up too late because you spent too much, or spent, uh, uh, stayed up too late watching that movie or doing that thing that you did. So your dog tired. No clothes were brought out, and the kids are running around screaming their heads off. They can't find anything. You get yelled at by your wife, and so you yell back at her because you can't find that pair of slacks that you're going to wear to the church. Nobody can find their Bibles. You get in the car, and you're rushing, so you're yelling at each other. And then you have the gall to say, man, the devil really just beats us up on Sunday mornings. I'm hitting a nerve, ain't I? And can I tell you, while the devil deserves a lot of the advertisements that he gets of wreaking havoc in our life, the problem isn't the devil. The problem is we're just too... Uh, I don't want to say that. The problem is, <clears throat> that's maturity, by the way. The problem is we're not prepared. We're not ready. And can I tell you, we are prepared for the important things. 
We're prepared for the priorities. We're ready when something is important to Tim Bidal, I make sure that I have everything all in a row. But can I tell you, far too many Sundays come along and I am ill-prepared for what God has for me. And so I come into this place. I'm angry at my wife. I'm angry at the kids. I'm late to church. And that's embarrassing. And the only focus that I have is to make sure I'm in the church before those elders close the stinking doors. And when they do, I'm mad at them. So I get into here, and I hate everybody's guts, and it takes me the whole worship time just to get to a point that I might think about worshiping God, and then the service gets done and I'm unchanged. Brothers and sisters, worship is all about preparation. Prepare my hearts. Let me ask you this this morning. How much time did you spend praying for this time? How much time did you dedicate to the reading of God's Word, preparing your heart? You know what passage we're in. Pouring over this and saying, Lord, enlighten my heart. Lord, speak through Tim, that he would not speak as Tim, but he would speak as you. How much time did you invest praying for the other people? If we're not prepared, we will never see what the first church saw because their priority was focused on worship. Number two, it involves it, worship results from concentrating on Scripture involves concentrating on scripture how can we worship and, and I, we'll talk about this more next week but how can we worship if we don't know who we're worshiping think about that how much do you know about God how much do you know about who he is and what he's all about what does he require have you ever asked the question what does God want me to do during this time it's far more than standing up and smacking your lips and some utterance of singing it's far more than making sure your eyes are closed and your head's bowed in prayer. What kind of God are we worshiping? Who is he? What is he all about? What does he want from us? What does he demand from us? If you're not concentrated on the scriptures, these people were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They said, you got to teach us because we don't want to get this wrong. Because if we get this thing wrong, we're in trouble. If we get this wrong, we're going to be an affront to a holy God. They'll learn a couple chapters later. If we get this wrong, God has, to, God has the prerogative to take our lives. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira. God said in the, in the book of Hebrews to us, it is a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And so the first church understood that, and they said, teach us. Teach us. I am so excited that the, the number of individuals that want to gather together, stretch their minds, and, and it doesn't make them better Christians, but I'm just excited that uh, in this church, the issue of theology, the study of who God is, is becoming such a priority. Not so that I can say a class is big, but because it is there that we will begin to understand who God is and what he expects of us. We got to know that to worship. It's not good enough to turn on something called family-friendly or positive and encouraging and just saying about this Jesus and not have a clue of who he is not that those are bad I'm not saying radio stations are bad but what I'm saying is we got to know who we're talking about and affirm that recently I heard someone in this church and I think they'd be okay with me sharing this bemoaning the fact that many churches they had been to some different churches really had no focus on people bringing their Bibles to the church 
just throw the scriptures on the screen. They were really struggling with that. But let me tell you something. There's nowhere in the Bible that it says you've got to do that. So I don't think that a church per se is sinning. It's not our practice here. We want the word. We want to see what the word says. We want to see it in context. But let me say this clearly. We are no better. In fact, I think we may be even a little worse off if the only time we open that Bible is on Sundays. We have to concentrate our worship on the Word of God. Notice one other thing that was involved. uh, I'm missing something here. Just stick with me here. Um, Another thing that I want to address here in verse 43 is that the other side of that dichotomy of praising God was that there was awe in every soul. And it came to the issue of doctrine. Notice verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe. Now, wait a minute. They were shouting with joy. This word awe means fear and trepidation. This is scary. This is that they were really, there, there was a deep and profound fear. And the reason why is they understood who God was. They understood what he was all about. And so <clears throat> they came praising God. But they also understood that praising God was a serious thing. So let me ask you this. Is there awe in your heart as we worship together? Do you leave this place different than you came in? Are you gripped by your sin and gripped by God's holiness? Do you see God as infinitely big and you as scrawny and small? Is your heart gripped with the huge calling that we have to make the most of every opportunity as Christians because our days are evil? Or do we come in and sing songs, hear some prayers, and hear a message and leave and go on to the things of the day. The word awe is a gripping term. And they understood that what they were a part of was huge. The final thing that we need to see is we need to confess our sins. When Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 saw the radiance and splendor of, Jesus, uh, of, of God in the year that King Uzziah died, it led him to confession. When we gaze upon the beauty of our God, it will always lead us to confess sin. Sin can't be in our lives when we worship God. And some of us have come in and we're so uh, flippant with our walks with Jesus Christ that we come in and we're filled with sin, filled with all kinds of issues, and we think we can just get together with God and sing some praises, and that's all he wants. As long as I give him my Sunday, uh, who really cares what I do the rest of the week? Brothers and sisters, how can God uh, allow worship from a child that refuses to live under his lordship? The only thing that we show, 1 John says, is that we are liars and the truth is not in us. The second area that we must confess, we need to confess our sins of ourselves, but we also need to confess sins of others. Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says that if we know that we've offended our brother or our brother's offended us, that before we go and give our gift at the altar, before we worship, that we must stop. Because we can't worship if we got issues with our brother or sister. And so we need to make right because there can't be bitterness in our hearts. We can't worship if we got issues with our brothers, if there's sin that isn't resolved. We're commanded to make right. And verse 21 says of Matthew chapter 5 that if we don't do that, then we act as murderers. Let me tell you something. If you are at odds and you are judging your brother in a wrong way, you're a murderer, the Bible says. And we talked about that with regards to the Ten Commandments. You're a murderer. How can you be an act of sin, of of, uh, emotional 
murder against someone and think you can walk in and praise the name of Jesus. So let me close with this. I'm gone longer than I wanted to. But let me close with this, and that is the principles of a life of worship. These were going to be short points. That was the plan. What does a life of worship involve? What's the application? Application number one is live every moment for God's glory. I'm going to give you a verse, and I'm just going to pray that you would do it. Whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. We're going to show something here in a minute that will help explain that. Number two, as people, as a corporate body, as a community in Christ, we need to intercede on behalf of others. What I mean by that is we need to pray that when we gather together, are we praying for one another saying, God, will you meet us in this place? Would you meet my children in this place? Would you meet the person that's sitting next to me? Would you, would you lead that person so that they would leave changed? Would you change me, Father, that we would go before one another? I'm sorry, go before God on behalf of one another and pray. Number two, we have to follow his commands. Obedience is a prerequisite to worship. We have to be willing to follow his commands. We can't diminish his commands and then think God is going to hear our worship. And number four, it involves expressing our awe and praise with others. Worship isn't an individual, an individual task done in the presence of others. It is done in common unity and love. And we need to do that. It needs to involve our fellowship, our conversation. And when we do that, when we pursue worship like this, brothers and sisters, it will change the way we greet one another. It will change the way we assimilate new guests. It will change the way we view songs. It will change every component of our service. And so this is what I want to do. I want to show a video. I'm going to have the guys put that up. A reminder, and as the video is shown, it's only about a minute and a half. I want you then uh, have the worship team come up. We're going to close our time singing, asking God to make this a priority for the rest of the week. And what I'm going to offer you is, as the worship team plays, I want you to sing like you've never sung before. I want you to come, and whether you want to pray in your pew or pray down here, if there's sins to confess, then come and confess them. If you want to lift your hands, if you want to get on your knees, I just want us to worship for even a short time. Just worship. And let's see what God will do.